The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. The latest trends and hottest topics, love and sex, handled honestly and with passion. Here's Dr. Lori, CJAD 800. It's Friday, which means I share with you some of the latest uh, sex stories of the week. But today, even more special, I attended uh, the uh, an annual conference for the Society for the Scientific Study of Sex. It's uh, ongoing for four days. It's an international conference, and it just so happens to be in Montreal. So lucky me, got to attend uh, some of the sessions today. And so I bring to you some of the latest research, much of which has been unpublished. So you would be the first uh, to hear it, aside from... Uh, the conference and some exciting stuff uh, that we're learning. And I love attending these conferences because it's full of researchers. I'm a clinician, so I practice in my office in a clinical setting, but then I get to hear all the research that's being done that can then be applied in the office or or at least gets uh, translated uh, for our listeners and for the public to just to get a better understanding of human sexual behavior. And there's always new stuff. I mean, there are so many uh, talks, hundreds of talks being given in the next four days. I certainly won't be able to attend them all. Um, but pick, I'm picking and choosing a few that uh, I think you will find interesting. So I've got some studies on sexual development to share with you, a study done on adult virgins and stigmatization. Uh, there was a big symposium on the controversy over the label of sex addiction or the diagnosis of sex addiction, which is interesting in light of the Tony Clement story, which I will share also and get some of your uh, thoughts on that at 514-800 to text in. But first, time to check out our inbox. Your calls and texts are always welcome. Connect with Passion now at 514-790-0800 or 514-800. You can also connect with me anytime via email, laurie at drlaurie.com. All right. I've been taking antidepressants uh, pills for about five months now, and the last few months I haven't been able to orgasm either by masturbating or intercourse, and I'm getting frustrated. Is there a way of making myself orgasm? I have tried the blue pill, just had an erection for four hours, but couldn't come then please help. So unfortunately, one of the very common side effects of antidepressant medication is anorgasmia, that's the official word of it, or delayed or absent uh, ejaculation. Uh, Antidepressant medication can affect the uh, human sexual response in, at different points. So it can affect arousal, which uh, would mean erection difficulties. So it can cause erectile dysfunction in some people. In others, it could delay ejaculation or create or, or just have no ejaculation uh, at all. Which is why, by the way, uh, antidepressants in low doses, not to treat depression, but used off-label is what it's called to treat premature ejaculation. And studies have been done, a few studies have been done to show that this is effective. Uh, You give somebody who's a premature ejaculator, you give them uh, low doses of antidepressants, just enough 
to cause the side effect. So in someone with depression, it's not a side effect you want. But in someone with premature ejaculation with no depression, it's a side effect that you want. Uh, But what to do in a case like this? It's unfortunate because sometimes you have to pick and choose, like uh, helping the depression and alleviating the depression and and having the ability to orgasm. I know, a difficult choice sometimes uh, to make. However, you can talk to your doctor, your prescribing uh, doctor, about this, discuss your side effects, and discuss possible solutions. Either the doctor may suggest to diminish your dosage, although you should never do this on your own, always do this with uh, the doctor's uh, guidance, or your doctor may suggest adding a medication to mitigate those side effects. And there are medications that can do that. I can think of one, Wellbutrin, which is often prescribed to mitigate those, um, to mitigate that. It's unfortunate when when uh, doctors prescribe these medications, they don't actually sit down and tell you these are the potential side effects, especially these common side effects. And I don't know if it's a fear that if you tell someone that they may have trouble uh, with their sexual functioning, that they may not take their medication or may decide against it. So maybe they don't want to say because they don't want to scare you off or they don't know or they don't have time. I'm not quite sure, but it really, this should be standard practice in my books. And there are so many medications actually out there that have sexual side effects that whenever you're prescribed something, just ask. Ask the pharmacist, hey, any sexual side effects of this medication? Because often in the, when you get those forms of that from the pharmacy, you know, that gives you like all these, these side effects, they don't necessarily uh, include the sexual side effects. So ask specifically what the sexual side effects are of any medication uh, that you're taking. And you know, sometimes some of the most basic things we take have a sexual side effect. Like if you take antihistamines on a regular basis, it doesn't tell you on the label, but it, it dries your mucous membranes and you have mucous membranes in your vagina. So uh, some women who um, may be on these medications may notice that they have a drier vagina and don't quite know why. And it's related to the medication. Uh, for the, the, the texter writes, for the caller on meds who can't come, ask the doctor about cannabis. Have you heard, I haven't seen any studies about adding cannabis to antidepressants to make somebody be able to ejaculate. The only thing that I'm thinking is that uh, cannabis, I guess certain strains would be a de- would be an added depressant. So it would counter counteract the effects of the medication, which you would need to fight the depression. So I'm not quite sure how that would work, but I'm curious to know where you got this information from and if you've seen any studies about the use of cannabis for depression or to counteract the side effects um, the side effects of, uh, of antidepressant medication. Uh, another texter wants to know, is this four day conference open to the public? It is. Anybody can go except that it's not free. It's, uh, quite expensive, but, uh, I think like just going for one day to the conference is something like 300 bucks or 300, something like that. Uh, and for the full conference, I think it's somewhere around a thousand dollars or something. So you could look it up, uh, look up, um, 
the Society for the Scientific Study of Sex, and then it'll direct you to the conference uh, registration, and then you can find out all the information that's there for you. How many days in a week or month is it a, is it healthy is it is a healthy masturbation? Is there an age when one should stop masturbating? I started masturbating when in 8th grade and had no clue what I was doing was actually masturbating. Is there anything such as exploitation of oneself through masturbation? I'm very scared of being affected by my habit. Uh, this uh, demonstrates a bit of a lack of, of information about uh, part of what is healthy sexuality, actually, because masturbation is, is a perfectly healthy and natural act. Some people start masturbating at a very young age and they never stop, and others just don't or do so much later uh, in life. Uh, now, although there have been studies that show that uh, maybe... A, Close to over 90% of men do, in fact, masturbate or have masturbated. Uh, Self-pleasuring is a great way to know your body. It's a great way to find out what works for you. There are many people who masturbate on a daily basis with absolutely no adverse effects. The only time you worry is when your masturbation feels out of control, like you cannot control it and it causes a problem for you in your daily living or it causes you uh, a lot of uh, distress. But I'm assuming that's not the case. So bottom line is you will not harm yourself by engaging in masturbation, bottom line. Uh, coming up, I'll share some uh, research results, some things that I, uh, some interesting research that uh, I discovered at the uh, at the conference today that I want to share with you. That's coming up. Your relationships on the line. Connect with Dr. Lori now. Five one four seven nine zero zero eight hundred. Passion News Talk Radio. CJAD eight hundred. A texter responding to my answer to the, uh, is masturbation normal or will it hurt me? Texter writes, that all depends on how and with what you do the masturbating <laughs> with. Well, certainly if you are hurting yourself or doing something excessively to cause chafing and what have you, then clearly uh, it's not healthy for you. But we're assuming this is just done in the regular fashion, whatever that means, because everyone has a different way. Uh, but as long as you're not physically harming yourself, but the act itself of masturbation is not uh, harmful. Of course, if you stick it somewhere in a, all I can think of is a vacuum cleaner tube and that's how you're doing it, that's potential harm. That's not cool. That's not good. Uh, Dr. Lori, the docs cannot tell you about the side effects on meds because the college will come down on them. The phar pharmaceutical lobbyist has them in the palm of their hand and incentives are on the line. I should know because it's a fact. So why should you know? Because it's a fact. I don't disagree with you, by the way, and maybe there is a whole uh, hidden agenda behind uh, not discussing sexual side effect, with which really is uh, damaging to the recipients and the, the, the patients. It's uh, not right. To me, that's just uh, n not ethical to keep that kind of information from, uh, from patients. But having said that, they're not going to not tell you if you ask them the question. And I always say we have to be 
are we have to be the ones who advocate on our own behalf when it comes to the medical system. Sometimes you have to push for things and you have to push for tests or push for information until you get it. So uh, we all have to be our own uh, best advocates in, in that respect. But I, I agree with you. I think there's, uh, there's some line there. All right, a couple of things that I attended today, this afternoon, that I wanted to share with you that I found interesting. So I attended a talk by uh, Diana Paragine from the University of Toronto. This is, I just want to repeat, unpublished, although public because it was at a conference that anybody could attend, so I feel okay uh, sharing with you, but it, it, it is yet, I'm not quite sure if this has been published yet, so none of the stuff I'm going to share with you. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure I can give you, you can check out the name of the person, uh, and, and their research, which might appear somewhere online, but don't ask me for more than that. Um, if you doubt me, what can I say? You'll have to trust me. Uh, so, uh, this, um, sex researcher was exploring whether adolescent sexual experience, particularly sexual reward, meaning an orgasm is associated with adult subjective desire. So what they did was they collected uh, responses from single adults uh, from ages 19 to 30 and examined whether the, the timing, meaning before or after age 14, and the reward, the or, whether they had orgasms or non-orgasms, of sexual debut, so how they began their sexual lives, predicted their current sexual motivation. What they found was that age at first orgasm significantly predicted higher current sexual motivation and fully mediated men's higher sexual motivation as compared to women. Sexual motivation meaning sexual drive, basically. Uh, Although men and women did not differ for age at onset of sexual experience. So both men and women had their first genital stimulation on average at around 12 years old. So it was 12 years old for men or boys and 12.5 years old uh, for girls. However, interestingly enough, 90% of the men compared to 33% of the women reported orgasm by age 14. Orgasmic sexual debut, so the age at which uh, boys had their first uh, orgasm was 13 years old, which fits right with the, the pubertal time. But although girls uh, stimulated themselves genitally or had some genital stimulation, their first orgasm was only at the age of 15. So uh, quite a discrepancy there. Uh, They go on to say, while women with pre- or peripubertal orgasm, so uh, on or around the age of 14, had high subjective sexual desire ratings similar to men's. But women who did not orgasm, so they had the genital stimulation uh, below the age of 14, but did not orgasm, had significantly lower subjective desire ratings than men. What's the conclusion then? 
This highlights the possible developmental importance of positive, rewarding sexual experiences during adolescence. So it talks about when you have these positive experiences, these rewards, being the orgasm, uh, that there is a link with adult uh, subjective feelings or subjective reports of uh, desire, which, according to this researcher, challenges the framework that we often talk about adolescent sexuality around risk and negative consequences and things like that. So bottom line is that this is confirmation that human sexual development has its own experience-dependent sensitive period. Just like um, they make the, the analogy to musicianship. The, when you have a good experiences, when you learn it at a young age, it, ta- it's, it becomes easier and you learn more as you go along. So it's developing that... Uh, Developing those positive experiences early gives you more positive uh, sexual, um, subjective uh, sexual responses later. So I thought that was really, uh, really interesting looking at that. Another study that was homegrown, actually, uh, Dr. Marie O. de Boilard of the University of uh, Quebec in Montreal has been studying adult virgins for quite a long time. She teaches at the University of Quebec at Montreal, UCAM, uh, in the department, I, I believe it's the Department of Sexology, but she's a, a doctor of sexology. And this was about adult virgins' stigmatization. Um, so in Canada, the uh, median age at first intercourse is 17 years old, hasn't changed in at least... 30 years, just want to say that. Um, And uh, a recent study found that adult virgins are perceived as less desirable partners and perceive themselves to be stigmatized. However, this researcher says virtually nothing is known about the how. How are adult virgins stigmatized? So the goal of the study was to explore the manifestations of adult virgins' stigmatization. So they looked at, uh, they did interviews with 26 heterosexual virgins between the age of 20 and 29, 63% of them were males. And then they also looked at, um, uh, public virtual spaces that they call basically the media. And they looked at shows that focused on late virginity or that had scenes in them or characters in them, uh, where there was an adult uh, virgin character, and they were able, and they kind of dissected the uh, the conversations uh, surrounding that. And this is what they found: that most adult virgins are increasingly stigmatized by their peers over time. So the older they are, the more stigma. Adult virgins experience a whole spectrum of stigma manifestations ranging from subtle patronization to overt exclusion, along with social pressure, labeling, devaluation, rejection, and ignorance. And all of this plays into the the decision-making of, do I tell somebody, do I disclose my virginity uh, to other people. 
And what they also found when they analyzed the media or they analyzed the, the scripts of the of TV, how is adult virginity depicted, they found that it aligns with real life stigma. So whatever they found uh, in, in those uh, in those clips, they also found in uh, real life following disclosure of virginity. And they found um, basically that it was much more often, the response was much more often humiliating than, uh, supportive even in, uh, in the media. So, um, older virgins often perceive themselves as love handicapped. And what they conclude is that the representations of adult virgins in the media certainly contribute to or exacerbate their stigma. So bottom line, one slide was, so what? Uh, so here it is. One trajectory of late virginity is social withdrawal and low peer integration. So if you are a late virgin, uh, you, you don't socialize as much. You don't integrate with your peers. The virgin label is often stigmatizing, even more so among older virgins. Uh, the stigma influences the decision to disclose one's virginity. And uh, reactions following disclosure vary. And, of course, the representations of adult virgins in the media may contribute to their uh, stigma. So interesting research. A very little research is done on adult, uh, adult virgins, by the way. So this is why this one is so important. Saw so another super interesting symposium today on compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Is it a sex addiction? Is it not a sex addiction? Should it be a, a label? Should it be a, a, an illness? What is it? And in light of all the stories we've been hearing, it's a really important question to be asking right now. So we'll do that after we check in with our newsroom here on CJD 800. The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. It's sex out loud. And you're welcome to listen in. Passion on CJAD 800. All right, let me share with you some other research. It is Friday, so uh, that's what we do. Usually you talk about sex in the news and uh, stuff like that. You can weigh in with any topic that you hear tonight at 514-800. You can call in at 514-790-0800. So very interesting talk today. I was, I'm attending the um, Society for the Scientific Study of Sex, commonly known in the field as QuadS. Uh, it is a yearly conference. It happens all over the world, basically. And this year, it happens to be in Montreal. It's at the Sheraton. If you're interested in going, you'll have to go to their website or their Facebook page and find out how uh, you can get in or register to get in. You can go for a one day. It's a Basically, it's a four-day conference. It was on... Uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I'll be there uh, tomorrow morning. I'll be there all day Sunday as well. It's a lot of learning, and it's a lot of talk about sex, let me tell you. But always fascinating, and it's always great for me to see all my colleagues from around the world that, you know, I've been in the business for 30 years and going to these conferences for 30 years. So it's been it's always great to see what people are up to and, and catching up uh, at that level because often you're, 
as experts in the field, you're often isolated, believe it or not, uh, when you're in clinical practice or just behind the microphone or, or what have you. You don't get to speak to all of your colleagues, so this is a great opportunity for me. But for you, I get to bring it to you, bring the research uh, to you. Uh, some of this research has not been um, uh, has not been published yet in in journals. So some of it is preliminary or research that has been done, uh, results that have been gotten but have not been yet uh, put out there and published. But uh, I am you're the first to hear some of this stuff, so I, I want to share with you. Very interesting symposium today on compulsive uh, sexual behavior disorder. Should it be or not be? included in the Bible of the psychiatric uh, disorders. So do we call it a sex addiction? Do we not call it a sex addiction? Uh, very interesting. And Nicole Prouse from California, Dr. Nicole Prouse was one of the presenters um, talking about this. And what I got from her is that she's just not convinced that this, that we should be including this in any uh, a diagnostic and statistical manual or a, or a manual of mental disorders, the one that we all use to diagnose, basically. Uh, what she was reporting was that um, basically there has to be distress in when there's any form of uh, of disorder. It, it, it should be coming with distress. Like there's Distress is always involved in whether any kind of uh, a sexual disorder, including any kind of compulsive sexual disorder. What, uh, what she was reporting is that the base rate of distress about sex or sex films, meaning or, or pornography, appears less than 2% of men and women cross-culturally who are distressed by their use of uh, pornography. Then she goes on to say that these remit spontaneously in most men and women within uh, a year and 100% remission within five years. Yet, she says, some people do still report distress about their frequent sexual behaviors. However, is the distress due to uh, personal uh, moral conflict? Is it due to high sex drive? Maybe not to negative consequences. Um is it predicted by frequency? Uh, what is it predicted by? And this is where uh, she was claiming that researchers have been unable to regularly repeat any of these things in laboratory studies, like to, to be able to study this in the lab. And this is what we need to be able to replicate this kind of stuff uh, to determine, especially when you're talking about a diagnosis and then uh, treatment. You need to have the science to back it up. So, and that's the same for all of the disorders. So uh, she says that laboratory studies have failed to document dysregulation of sexual feelings, negative consequences, or enhanced Q reactivity. In other words, uh, you, um, they present uh, addicts, so let's say coke addicts, for example, they'll present them with pictures of cocaine and they measure brain activity. And they see, at least with cocaine, uh, this is what she was reporting, you can see uh, some parts light up. Uh, so they, they, 
there's a, they are reactive to those cues, but they have not been able to find those same reactions to the cues of, uh, of sex films, for example. She says studies consistently fail to control confounds well known to sexual science, including relationship distress sex drive level, and masturbation frequency over time. All of these things make it very difficult to determine whether something is an addiction or or just uh, a reaction to relationship distress, for example. So it wouldn't be addiction in and of itself. Uh goes on to say um, that while pornography addiction and sex addiction were rejected for inclusion in the International Classification of Disorders, compulsive sexual behavior disorder was added. So that's what it's called now, compulsive sexual disorder. This addition, she says, was prematurely added because, one, the criteria were never tested and have failed, in fact, their first test, Two, a high comorbidity shows a novel disorder was unwarranted. So comorbidity means that there are um, many other disorders that could explain this. Like that, that, that uh, let's say somebody with a sexual compulsive disorder can also suffer from anxiety, can also suffer from depression. And teasing all of those apart is difficult. And she said three, Homosexually identified men are overrepresented as affected. Thus, the introduction of uh, compulsive sexual behavior disorder has effectively repathologized homosexuality and stigmatized high sex drives, increasing shame and distress rather than reducing the same. And this was her contention. It was a debate. There was the other side uh, making parallels with gambling addiction and such. Um, but this is, I mean, this, this woman, Nicole Prouse, is a huge researcher in, in the field. Like that, she does that 100% of the time, uh, is researching this kind of stuff. So makes a lot of sense. Then I read, uh, this is not related to anything I saw at the conference, but reading uh, an article by Sharon Kirkey, uh, that, uh, I don't remember where it was published on one of the news, uh, news feeds somewhere. Uh, and the headline was women nearly as distressed as men over compulsive sexual urges and behavior. And she, uh, talks about a, a, a study that showed that 10% of men and 7% of women met the criteria for what I just talked about for compulsive sexual behavior disorder. But I want to share more of this because although she talks about this uh, this one particular study, it really points to also how we look at uh, distress and why somebody might be distressed. Are you distressed because you were caught or are you really distressed by your own behavior? And what leads you into treatment? So think about people who've been caught, public figures who say, I'm going into treatment, I'm going into treatment. What does that actually mean? We'll talk about that. Straight talk that's all inclusive. Passion with Dr. Lori. News Talk Radio, CJAD 800. 
sharing with you tonight some of the latest research about sex. That is uh, some published, some not. Uh, this article was written by Sharon Kirkey, and this is, was talking about a, a study that shows that 10% of men and 7% of women met criteria for compulsive sexual behavior disorder. But what does that mean exactly? Because it talks about uh, distress in all of this. I want to just uh, read you parts of this. So this was done, a big survey done of over 2,300 uh, adults in the U.S. 10% of the men, 7% of the women met the clinical cutoff point for compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Remember, this is a newly named category of sexual pathology that basically involves a persistent inability to control intense, repetitive urges and feelings resulting in repetitive sexual behavior that causes marked distress or social impairment. The men and women exhibited the entire range of sexual symptoms from problematic but non-clinical out-of-control sexual behavior, meaning it does not meet the standard for a formal diagnosis, all the way to certifiable psychiatric disorder. Uh, remember, the diagnosis is still controversial, okay? So this is uh, based on the other research I, I presented to you a, a little bit earlier. So as one psychologist said, when do sexual urges, feelings, and behaviors cross the line from normal to compulsive, a pathological brain disorder. The official diagnosis now does not indicate a right amount or right kind of sex. So if we look at some of the symptoms, um, it it's, falls under impulse control disorder. And the researcher that I heard today was saying that you cannot, one is, you can't call something compulsive and impulsive at the same time. Although there's a crossover, there are two different kinds of, uh, of behaviors or, or characteristics. So in her mind, that doesn't even make sense. But anyhow, let, let me just go back to this. So the World Health Organization defines compulsive sexual behavior disorder as an impulse control disorder. Symptoms w which must persist for six months or more can include repetitive sexual activities becoming a central focus of the person's life, numerous unsuccessful attempts to reduce the behavior, and continued repetitive sexual behavior despite adverse consequences. However, distress that is entirely related to moral judgment and disapproval about sexual impulses, urges, or behaviors is not sufficient to meet this requirement. That's what the definition reads. So if you think about the public figures who have been caught and then claiming that they needed treatment, where was their distress? Was their distress based on having, uh, been uh, caught because their behavior is looked upon. They've been judged morally by the public, of course, uh, and whatever. Uh, so all of that uh, is there. So you think of Harvey Weinstein, you think of Tony Clement, like these are people who went out looking for, uh, who, who said that, oh, I need help now. I, I need to, to, to get help. But as one author writes, from Tiger Woods to Harvey Weinstein, news articles have conjectured that sex addiction is a growing and heretofore unrecognized epidemic, while the scientific community debates whether such a problem 
even exists. So there are clearly still a lot of controversy here. Uh, and we have to uh, be careful when we label this. Even this study that showed that uh, 7% of women met the criteria because they were distressed. But why were they distressed? Were they distressed because there was some shaming, uh, because they just had a higher sex drive? So it's really important to look at all of that uh, context. And when you look at, of course, the big story this week was Tony Clement, right? Admits inappropriate online exchanges which uh, that led him to acts of infidelity. What ended up happening is that he, uh, and there's a history of this apparently with him, where he spends a lot of time online and connects with people, often young young women, and uh, and and has these kinds of exchanges. And this time... He was thinking that he was sending it to somebody that he was connecting with online, but I guess they were trapping him and then extorted, basically extorted money from him, uh, claiming that they would show all the whatever, whatever sexual content that, that he sent to them, which I believe included some nudity and, and things like that. So this created a whole, uh, a whole scandal and he did he did admit that he, his activities online, and there has been many, this is not the only time, it is not a one-time incident, has led him to acting out and to infidelity. But then he had said, you know, he's going in for treatment. So is he, like, this is, we have to ask the question. Um, like, is this bad behavior, bad choices, or sex addiction. When when public figures say, well, I'm going into treatment, the underlying message is uh, I have a problem and I'm out of control. So do we just immediately label them as, as sex addicts and as ill, which may take away some of their uh, responsibility, if you will, for their bad behavior? Or are they just stupid and, and, and doing, making stupid choices that get them into trouble and, oh no, I got caught. Now I have to go get help. So how distressed was he actually throughout committing all of these acts? I don't know. Like we, and, and same with all of the public figures that, um, uh, that ended up going into treatment after being caught. What was the distress throughout their acting out? So. There you have it. Uh, that couple of texts here. Dr. Lori, what a double standard. The politician sent naked pics to the woman and then she blackmails him. So what did he do wrong? Why people not on her case for blackmailing him? She is the bad B word. He sent a few pics. So what? Well, <clears throat> there's a couple of so what. So what? You're a public figure. And when you send explicit nude stuff out there in cyberspace, you have no idea whose hands it's going to get into. So that was stupid, just plain stupid for anybody, especially if you're a public figure, to do that. Of course, she she is to blame or whoever is behind it. Maybe it isn't a she. Maybe it's a it's a he who fronted as a she. Who, we don't even know all of that. But they uh, he was vulnerable to this kind of stuff because he did a lot of activities online and somebody saw an opportunity and th- nobody's excusing the behavior of the blackmailer, but it's not really a double standard. He did a stupid thing. If a woman had done it, she would have done a stupid thing. 
same thing. And the last uh, texter is very cute. As I listen, I wonder if the good doctor has time to practice what she preaches, considering the conference is private practice and the radio show. Oh, and many other things that I do. But uh, thank heavens, there has, has to be a little time for couple time, yes. <laughs> but thanks for caring and being concerned for me. Uh, that's it for me. Thank you so much uh, for listening and for spending your time with me. Thank you for your text. Thanks to Dave Simon, our technical producer. You can connect with me on social media at Dr. Lori Batito or my website, drlori.com. Coming up next on CJD, the CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening, a fabulous weekend, and remember to live your life with passion. <laughs>